The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. Is 3.5% the new 4% rule? It is if you wear black. Hello, everybody. This is Alex here coming to you live from Retire With Style, and I'm here with... Wade. And how are we doing today, Wade? Yeah, great. (laughs) (laughs) You've got your... Wolfman Jack radio voice. There we go. Yeah, that's about as good as I can do. What did you think? What did, you, did I catch you by surprise? Maybe good. <laughs> You're ready for the morning zoo shows. Yeah, either that or, you know, my high school used to do kind of this uh, during spring break. There was always like this carnival that would come by. And I don't know, there was this ride called the Gravitron. Do you, does that ring a bell at all? No, what did it do? I, That's the one. It, it would, you go inside like a flying Spin? saucer. Yeah, you go inside like a flying saucer looking thing, and it just spins. And the centrifugal force kind of oh, you know yeah, puts yeah. you on the wall. And the guy would kind of say, do you want to go faster? <laughs> that kind of thing. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my Gravitron voice. I know what you mean. There you have Got it. it. <laughs> uh, so wait, what, what's new since the last recording? What's, what's new in your life? Oh, yeah, I think we already covered everything. <laughs> yeah, I think you have a funny story. That well, like that was a little preamble. Yeah, I, actually, we're recording this right <laughs> after the previous episode. So the joke is nothing has really happened. But I, I was telling Wade, I went to get coffee <laughs> real quick between episodes. And my youngest son, Luke, and he's 13, right? And his older brothers are playing, you know, they're PC gamers and they're they're still well-rounded children. They really study. They play an instrument, athletics. So they're not just, no, I'm kidding. They play video games all the time. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the little brother is it's finally gotten tired of asking his brothers to play on their computers. And they've gotten tired of letting him play on their computer. And so he finally saved up money and he bought one. And it's coming in today. And the whole day he's been like waiting for it, almost like Christmas in August, right? And so he's been tracking it on Amazon and this and that, and he's just very vigilant. And so in between, I noticed he was kind of upstairs just waiting. And I got one of these big cardboard boxes. I put it up on the porch and I knocked on the door and just ran real fast away from there. And he just comes shooting down, (laughs) opening it, you know, coming down, shooting down, going to the porch, opening up. And the moment he picks up the box and realized it was empty, he just, he knew it was me. And he looks for me and he's just looking at me with a this 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 countenance of disappointment wait is, is the best mm-hmm. i can do but hey it was a hell of a moment that was a moment of my proud bad moments because i got him and that's all that matters so the rest of the day is only going downhill that's the story of my life well, wait things are going to go uphill for you now because we're going to talk about some really important retirement income stuff that's right that's right here we go uh, where do we live off, man? Where, where do we? Yeah, what, what's yeah. the what's the what's the flow for today? 
kind of, we're in episode three of our quote unquote season in terms of we've talked about what's a sustainable spending level from investments and how it's easy to answer if you know what the returns will be, what the time horizon is, how much you want at the le- at the end. Then we talked about sequence of returns risk and how that can really throw a, a wrench into the, well, the gears, so a, to speak. A couple of things. What happens if you use that service called VectorVest that kind of gives you a green light, red light, or yellow light when you should get in and out of the market? Did they look into that when they were doing the, the safe max? Oh, yeah. I don't know if we've had a, a full-scale... A sustainable spending strategy that incorporated an effective market timing. Yeah. Oh, technique. damn. All right, <laughs> I don't all think right. that's on the agenda for I today. just saw commercial and I was, it was riveting, riveting. Oh, are you serious? The, oh, think, yeah. There's these commercials. I there's a, well, I, may, I don't know if I remember the name right, but I, we won't get into that today. I, I think it's like VectorVest or something like our, that. I don't know how they okay, put commercials I, on that. I don't I know how it's legal to put commercials like that, <laughs> but whatever. That's <laughs> not my... It's not my... Uh, it's not within my purview of uh, decision-making <laughs> to decide what goes on. I'll leave that up to the FCC. Uh, actually, I think it's because they're not technically registered advisors. You can kind of say whatever you want. I get that vibe, but you know, whatever. Uh, where were we? <laughs> Sorry, wait. I, I really went off the deep end there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we are today we're going to talk about what I prefer to as the uh, spend conservatively strategy, although I, there's definitely a bunch of caveats that go along with that name and that we're going to actually get into today. But I think you objected to the name in general without even getting into caveats. So we'll let you air your grievance first. But yeah. then we'll get into just really the foundational research that gave us what's known as the 4% rule and all the assumptions that go into that research. That's, yeah. that's our focus. Yeah, today. before my little prank on my uh, 13-year-old son, uh, and we ended the last episode, uh, Wade was referring to uh, the safe max as the conservative rate. And I said, after we hung up, obviously, I wasn't going to cross Wade live. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was saying, wait, I don't, I don't think that's a conservative uh, strategy, largely because once you set your rate, at 4%, whatever, four, you know, four or three and a half, whatever. Once you set your rate, it's a nominal number and you adjust for inflation and come hell or high water, it is what it is. You take that amount out no matter what. And as you'll see, that's that, that dynamic is actually quite aggressive relative to other potential strategies. So I was like, we're other potential sustainable withdrawal rate strategies. So I was like, wait, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think that's conservative in, mm-hmm. in, in my view. And then Wade had a had a response that he was just looking at it from another point. But yeah, go. yeah, and, and you're right. Like it, you play this game of chicken. It's not a realistic strategy because no one would actually do this in real life anyway. They just keep spending and spending, even <laughs> as your portfolio plummets towards zero. Uh, but you're right; that's not very conservative. <laughs> but what I mean by spend conservative is. It's kind of the way you approach the question of what's a reasonable time horizon, what's a reasonable rate of return type of an assumption. And so the spend conservatively strategy, I just mean, let's figure out a reasonably conservative time horizon, a reasonably conservative type of rate of return. And then that means we're going to be spending less. 
And when we get to the point where we're comfortable that spending's low enough that we're not going to outlive our assets, we're, we're not going to have to adjust our spending, then we're fine. And that's how we proceed with our retirement. And so what we're talking about today, starting with the 4% rule, is based on living in 95, which was viewed as highly unlikely. And it was based on calibrated to, I should say, the worst case market performance in the U.S. historical data. And so that was also viewed as conservative. If I'm picking the strategy that's supposed to work in the worst case, supposed to last to age 95, if I'm 65 years old at, at retirement, that's what I mean by the term spend conservatively. But we'll, we'll dig into all the assumptions that go into that and ultimately what the implications are if you change those assumptions to, in many cases, make them more realistic and what that means for the spending. Okay. And how did the, how did the study occur to begin with? What's the methodology? Because, you know, we talked in, in the two episodes ago, just the whole payment rule, which is, you know, you take these five variables, you know, portfolio value, expected value, return, money you take out, how long you're going to live and voila, there you have it. But that's a very straight line, one-time shot. How did how did he review? And, and incidentally, this is just the U.S. markets. Wade actually cut his teeth initially by looking at this this kind of dynamic beyond the U.S. market. But uh, by just looking at the U.S. market, how did he go about even figuring out what that lowest potential you know number was? Mm-hmm. Right. Really, his genesis was people misapplying the that PMT function or that payment rule that kind of the, the thought process in the early 1990s was to say, well, the S&P 500 is averaging 7% after inflation as an arithmetic mean. So I build myself a little spreadsheet. I plug in a 7% rate of return. My portfolio grows 7%. I can take 7% out. Uh, that 7% is growing with inflation. My spending is growing with inflation. I never even really dip into my principal. I just kind of spend this fixed 7% return off of my portfolio every year. And, and Bill Bingen recognized that's ridiculous. And so really his study uncovers this sequence of returns risk and, and the potential impact it can have because he's recognizing you don't get the average return every year markets are volatile. And so how he approached this, he got a hold of the, the Ibbotson Morningstar data. It's a very common, popular data source that people like to use. With stock and bond returns going back to 1926, he mentioned how he decided on a 30-year horizon. So he said, well, what if you had retired hypothetically in 1926? So you got the market returns from 1926 through 1955. How much could you have sustainably spent in that retirement? Then what if you had retired hypothetically in 1927, got the returns from 27 through 56, and so on and so on, until now today we're at 1992 through 2001 would be that most recent 30-year period that we have the complete data for. Do you know offhand how, how, many, much- how many periods that is? I, I, I don't want to sit and think about it. Yeah, we're, we're getting close to... I know that there's a, close to a hundred total years and then you have to subtract the 30. So okay, the, the only, close to 70, 70, but the only thing that I'm going with 67, 67, 67 years where I'm going 67 with 67 rolling okay, 30 in, year periods all right, in 67 rolling 30 year periods. My issue with this right off the bat, if I was like, I'm, you know, if I'm like talking to my dissertation professor, 
And I'm saying, hey, I've got this study and I'm going to be doing this and that. And I don't know about economics, but in psychology, I would definitely get this feedback. I wouldn't be allowed to do this. Not be allowed, maybe too strong a word. But I'd be forewarned that this is not a good methodology to begin with because of a, a thing known as autocorrelation. Like if you're if you're taking these rolling returns, the correlation between the first sample and the next sample, there's only a one year difference, you mm-hmm. know, and so forth and so forth and so forth. So the, the comment that I would have from a pure scientific query basis is these 67 samples, whatever it is, whatever you said, 60 plus samples aren't really 60 independent samples. Right. There's you not know, 67 independent. There's really only two. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honestly, this, this is this is a huge, this is kind of, I don't know what to say. Wait, this this is like, uh, so besides that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln, kind of moment, you know, for me? <laughs> no, it really is because so it's like. You're dismissing the whole episode before we get started. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't mean it like that. I mean it with love. <laughs> Sorry, I'll be quiet. I'll be quiet. But no, it's just it's just when I just don't like it when people say, "Oh, I've looked at sixty-seven years of returns, and look, it's never failed once." You know, in theory, I get it, and it's fine. And over, it's just a matter of over time. I'm sure you'll get something similar. But I don't like the the certainty people pose this with. Is I guess what I'm getting at because these aren't independent samples you're uh-huh. looking at. You know, yes, that's where I'm like sixty-seven rolling thirty-year periods with overlap. The uh, the first and second periods overlap with twenty-nine out of the thirty years. Uh, there was a so the uh, the statistics of this are beyond my skill set, but there was a Princeton professor who looked at the kind of what's the true sample size with overlapping data, and it's going to be a lot less than sixty-seven. It would be more than two, but yeah, it's it would be more closer than two. to the two side than the uh, sixty-seven side in terms yeah. of how many real. Like how much information can you get? And from a normal distribution, what do you need? What twenty-seven central limits? There, you know, you, you know, you, you need something around thirty plus or minus twenty-seven plus or minus. I don't know if it gets to that, but you, so, but let me let me stop there. Continue. <laughs> well, and, and we'll get into this too with the later episode with the international data. This is all based on the twentieth-century U.S. when the U.S. became the world's leading superpower in our stock market capitalization rose to be 50% of the world's total by the year 2000 and everything else associated with that. But uh, that's, we're not, we're not there yet. <laughs> that is a potential critique of this methodology though. I, I can definitely acknowledge that, but I thought I was the one who was supposed to be critical of the, the 4% rule, well, not you. <laughs> Go on. I, but, I, I yes. digress. Okay. <laughs> you digress. Okay. And everything else that you've said aside, at least this is going to be better than plugging in that 7% return into a spreadsheet. Uh, hopefully we can both agree. This oh, yeah, is yeah, a yeah. better methodology than that. Uh, yeah, and I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I just, I'm just going off the little caveat of, oh, look at all these numbers, 70 years of data. I said, nah, not so fast. <laughs> 67 rolling 30-year periods. Yeah. Okay, but he looked at, okay, if you'd retired in each of these different 67 years, well, he, I'm sorry, he didn't even have that. In 1994, his data went through 1992, so he only had, this is really going to make you mad. The, no, I, I'm not mad. What, I just thought. For him, uh, 1963 through 1992 would have been his most recent 30-year period. 
So he really only had, you know, 35, I'm not doing some, under less than 40 rolling 30-year periods. Only one truly independent 30-year period. But okay, uh, with that aside, <laughs> I'm talking about just extending his methodology to the present, so to give us more data points here. Nonetheless, the worst case scenario happened far enough back that it's not impacting what we're describing. But he, he looked at then, what could I have sustainably spent if I'd retired in each of these years as a hypothetical retiree? And he defined that percentage as, I'll take out that amount in the first year, and then I'll just keep spending that same amount plus inflation growth for the next 30 years. And so if in a particular year, if 6% was a number, it meant if I started with a million, I could have taken out 60,000, increased that 60,000 for inflation each year, and I would have hit zero right at the end of year 30. So that so, was the maximum spending rate that so, I could sustainably spend over 30 so years. So wait, I just want to say that one more time because I think a lot of a lot of folks get confused, professionals and consumers, when people say the 4% rule. And I think it's because the oh, title yeah. is 4%. But if you notice, just to, to be clear, what you're doing is you, a $100 portfolio, 4% is $4.00. So I'm going to take out $4. Why $4 and not $5 and not $3? Cuz $4 was the lowest amount that you can safely take out. I mean, not the high, what was the one the, was the, it yeah, and was the, high, the highest <laughs> the highest lowest take number. out in the worst. Yeah, case. yeah, the highest number you can take out in the worst case scenario. Yeah, right? Yeah, I got confused there. You know, <laughs> that you can take out. Once you and whatever percentage that is, that is. But the, once you determine that nominal amount, $4, then in year two, you don't take out 4%. You just take out $4 plus or minus what inflation was that year. And then it resets mm -hmm. every year nominally relative to the inflation amount. So it's not a percentage on an ongoing basis. It's just what the percent was in year one. And then it and then it resets nominally according to inflation. That, mm -hmm. that little caveat is, 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 I think, lost by many because – I don't know if anyone's ever just taken the time to just say it like that. Yeah, and I don't remember which publication it was, but that's even been confused in one of the major like consumer personal finance publications where the uh, the 4% rule, it's an initial withdrawal rate and it's a constant amount strategy. You could say, well, why isn't the 4% rule? I'll just take out 4% of what's left every year, 4% of the remaining portfolio balance. That is the opposite. Uh, I mean, it's 4%, but it, it has, it's a completely different retirement spending strategy. It's, and that's not what's meant by the 4% rule. The 4% uh, of what's left every year is a constant percentage strategy that's going to change the amount every year based on portfolio performance. Yeah, but that's another thing the altogether, right? 4% rule is a constant amount strategy. That's like that allows the withdrawal rate to fluctuate over time. That's like Dr. Strange. Welcome to the multiverse. <laughs> you start, mm -hmm. you we'll, say, we'll get into that, though, because that's the heart and soul of starting the conversation around variable spending, because the 4% rule is not an example of variable spending. You decide how much you're going to spend in year one, and then you just go with it. You increase it for inflation, but it you don't ever adjust it based on how your portfolio is actually nominal is set, it's set. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's why Wade said earlier, and, it's kind of like you're playing chicken with a market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, if you're in a scenario where your portfolio starts plummeting towards zero, you just, oh, I'm not going to adjust my spending. I'm sure I'll die before I run out of money. It's, that's the assumption. Now, it's not a realistic assumption. 
ultimately the 4% rule is not a realistic retirement income plan. It's more just to get a sense of what is sustainable and nothing more. But but that's what it is. It it was specifically, well, it depends, asset allocation, we'll get into that a little more too, but with a like a 50% stock allocation, a 75% stock allocation, it's generally 1966 is the year that triggered this worst case scenario in the U.S. historical data. That if I had a 50-50 portfolio of S&P 500 and intermediate term government bonds, I could have taken out just slightly more than 4% if I had re- hypothetical retiree in 1966, taken out 40000 from a million, increased it for inflation, and then I would have run out of money at the end of 1995 after a 30-year-long retirement. That's where the 4% rule comes from. And if you notice, and, that, um, and, and, and a lot of those, a lot of those four percenters, it's the lowest one, but a lot of the, a lot of them cluster, a lot of other 4% being the lowest point cluster around that 1966 range, you know, hence the, right. Yeah. You get lower. So the great depression is not the source of the 4% rule. And this gets into an inflation type issue as well. There was deflation during the great depression, the, Price level actually dropped by around 25%. Stocks did not do well, but bonds actually doubled in purchasing power during the Great Depression. So the 4% rule is not triggered by the Great Depression, at least with a 50-50 asset allocation. It's triggered more by that 1960s world where markets were more highly valued. It wasn't even an issue about low interest rates, but also higher inflation. So rough market environment, high inflation, that's what really led to those lowest withdrawal rates in the U.S. historical data. Wait, how many people are listening to that phrase that you just said, rough market and high inflation, <laughs> and are thinking, yeah, it hey, sounds, uh, sounds familiar. Sounds a, like, <laughs> sounds a bit like 2022. <laughs> You're welcome, that's everybody. A, and that, that's been a saving grace of the 4% rule in the recent past is just we've had low inflation for a while, and that really helps because it puts less pressure on increasing spending over time. But if, if that goes away and if inflation gets higher, it's it's another concern. Okay. And you said but that's it, also jumping a bit ahead. Yeah, you said earlier, Wade, and I don't know if you want to really unpack that, but you're saying four percent, and you know you just you just hinted at portfolio allocations. You kind of said very <laughs> briefly fifty percent to seventy percent equity, uh, and yeah. how that ranges. What what what's your view on that? Because in the previous episode, we spoke about how you know, your allocation can play a role in this as well. So what, what uh-huh. what's your thoughts around that? Okay, 4, 4.03, that's with a 50% allocation, if I'm, if, if I'm correct or no. 50% yeah. allocation yeah, for is a little higher, episode, right? Let's kind of stick to Bill Bingen's research okay. and, and talk. So when we talk about asset allocation, okay, it's not my, my opinion for anything. I got you, I got we'll you. talk about Bill Bingen's research today. But, but yeah, I, let's talk about asset allocation. And also, I think it's worth, uh, I, in a past ep- the previous episode, I, I said sequence risk uh, amplifies investment volatility. We can get a nice taste of that with the actual 4% rule. So it was based on the market returns from 1966 to 1995. If I had put a dollar in the market in 1966 and just watched it grow for the next 30 years in this 50-50 allocation, it would have grown at 4.2% real compounded growth rate. So it's a 
a growth rate of 4.2% plus inflation, it's pretty high. It's not a bad average return for a 30-year period. I mean, it is lower than the overall average, but it's not, not that bad. But, I mean, if I had just got a fixed real return of 4.2%, plugging that into the PMT calculator, that would imply a 5.9% withdrawal rate. And the 4% rule is not a 5.9% rule. That's where volatility comes into play. If I had been spending every year, it puts disproportionate weight on that late 1960s, early 1970s period. After 1982, markets do great, and that's the back half of that retirement. If you'd retired in 1982, the withdrawal rate's actually close to 10% with this 50-50 portfolio. But it's really too late at that point for the 1966 retiree. There we're on track for the worst case scenario. The 4% rule implies that they only earned a 1.3% real return on their investments, even though the average investment portfolio or investment performance was 4.2% real. So that sequence of returns risk in action. When I'm spending for my portfolio, it's like I was only earning 1.3% from a portfolio that if otherwise had been left alone would have been earning 4.2% so, real. So wait, is it fair to say that if you're in the, if you're probability based, optionality oriented and, and, and strong into the total return approach, you have to open yourself up to the possibility that you may be unlucky in the, you know, in the, in the first part of your retirement. It, it just is what it is. It, it has nothing to do with smarts. It's just some, it's just your particular cohort. Are you retiring into this type of economic or, whatever, stock market cycle. And you just have to come to terms with that. And <laughs> that's not a value statement. It's just an observation. Is that a correct statement, though? It is. And and though the, the Bill Bengen response to that would be that, though recognizing past performance is not a guarantee of anything, the fact that this did always work historically and putting aside your concern that there's not that many <laughs> data points to base this off of, but uh, because it's worked historically, I'm, I fundamentally feel fine that it yeah, will work yeah, fine, fine in the future as well. Okay. So that, that would be the uh, response to that, yeah, I guess. But the reality is you're 15, you, you, you're still getting it handed to you and you, you have no idea if the markets are going to turn around. But, you know, you need to have almost blind faith that it will. Uh-huh. If you, yeah, if you're, that's really a, an assumption of the 4% rule is just, yes, you're, you're going to be okay because you're comfortable basing this on history. And in history, you would have been okay. Okay. So, yes. Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement Researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals. Okay, you mentioned asset allocation. So it's worth mentioning. So in his 1994 article, Bill Bengen said, and I'll, I'll quote, I think it is appropriate to advise the client to accept a stock allocation as close to 75% as possible, and in no cases, less than 50%. Now, this is something that whenever you do this kind of research, it's always coming out like this. <laughs> For this sort of spending strategy, you need to invest fairly aggressively. 
and, and the what led him to that conclusion was really just comparing what was the safe well, yeah we've used this term safe max a few times that is safe max is the maximum spending rate in the worst case scenario the safe max doesn't really get all that much lower as you increase the stock allocation but with a higher stock allocation on average you're going to do a lot better you're going to leave a lot more money behind at the end and so because a higher stock allocation doesn't really impact the safe max negatively and it just gives you all this upside why not just invest more aggressively it's effectively the probability now, working out the probability bet is yeah, working yeah. out and in a, an article so he had a series of four articles over the next several years after 1994 and a later one he broke it down into 5% increments and then found the 4% rule historically worked between anywhere from 35 to 80% stocks so you you could extend his first article was only looking in 25% increments so with that broader approach you could say well reinterpreting the statement i think someone should invest as close to 80% stocks as possible but in no circumstances less than 35% stocks because the safe max was always the same in that range if you went less than 35% stocks there is no 4% rule historically the the withdrawal rate gets lower with 0% stocks with his preferred intermediate term government bonds it was about a 2.4% safe max if it was again if it was all bonds at 100% stocks it's a little bit less than 4% as well uh but just a, a little bit less not a lot less than 4% and so again it's kind of why not just invest more aggressively based on historical data you're not taking more risk you're just getting a lot of reward most of the time and so that that's the the asset allocation story coming out of this this kind of spend conservatively strategy is it's not invest conservatively it's invest pretty aggressively but just calibrate your spending to be low enough that you're not worried you're going to outlive it so that that's the 4% rule and that, that's the asset allocation there's a few variations on that bill bengen wrote in 1994 there was something that's colloquially called the uh, trinity study that was published in 1998 and scott burns was talking about that study in the dallas morning news and that's where this kind of research really started to enter the public consciousness but it it framed the problem a little bit differently where it just instead of focusing on a safe max it was focused on the question of what's the probability you'd have a high the, the spending was higher than any sort of number you're looking at so for example with bill bengen's data we could say like how safe is the 5% rule what if i use a 5% distribution rate and then historically if you count up all the times the withdrawal rate was at least 5% so we're back to this historical rolling data 48 times the withdrawal rate was at least 5% with this 50-50 portfolio uh out of the 67 total rolling 30 year periods so then you would say a 5% distribution rate has a 72% success so let me rate. let me just say that one more time because i want to make sure everyone gets it so 4% rule it was successful 100% of the time out of the 67 rolling periods well now it's 67 whatever it was back when he did it it worked 100% of the time And so mm-hmm. way to say well some people started playing around with that okay fine 100% of the time but that's that's a lot that's a lot of safety there I'm fine with uh something that worked 80% of the time 
And that's where, okay, instead of 4%, I did 5%. And voila, that worked, whatever 80% is of the total number. It, it's kind of what you're saying. I, I just want to make mm-hmm. sure that's understood because, yeah, you, you, you know, giving yourself more flexibility around that. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Trinity study, it looked at different asset allocations, different retirement lengths, different withdrawal rates, and just counted up the historically the number of times that withdrawal rate worked for that set of factors. And if we want to really dive into the weeds a little bit, so I mentioned the intermediate term government bonds. This is like about a five-year maturity treasury. It's the sweet spot for bonds. Short-term bills are less volatile, but they don't give enough yield, so they're not going to support as high withdrawal rates. Longer-term government bonds, corporate bonds, do have higher yields, but they are more volatile and historically don't support as high withdrawal rates. The, the, four, the intermediate-term government bonds, five years, is the sweet spot to give you the highest withdrawal rates. The Trinity study, though, switched the bond index they used long-term corporate bonds instead of intermediate-term government bonds. And with that, there were two historical cases, I think it was 1965 and 1966, where the 4% rule did not work. And therefore, they said the 4% rule had a 95% success rate. And I think that led to a lot of confusion uh, for everyone because then it sounds like a in statistics, you talk about like a 95% confidence interval and things. And it was just a coincidence with this 95% number, but then sentimentally somehow the interpretation became, Oh, if you use 4%, it'll work 95% of the time. And not, not then putting together two and two, which is that's just historically it would have worked 95% of the time. And with Bengen's data, it would have worked hundred percent of the time. But I think that was just that 95% is it's kind of, had a worse impact on everyone than if it had just been a hundred percent because it almost introduced this kind of level of precision, <laughs> like scientific rigor that wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's the Trinity study. It was all about these portfolio success rates instead of safe. Who, who did the, the, were, were these academics that did the study or were these like practitioners that did the study? No, the, the Trinity study was actually academics. Uh, it's called the Trinity study because they Baylor were... Baylor or something? Two, two of the three or all three were faculty members at Trinity University oh, okay, in San Antonio, go. Texas. Cooley, Hubbard, and Waltz. So okay. Doing a deep dive into my memory banks on that one. That's the names of the three but, authors. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Uh, I, when I looked at this, I remember when I looked at it the first time, and this is and, and and again, I'm not knocking. I'm just kind of providing a maybe I'm purposely trying to provide a counter view more than anything and, and really to drum up discussion, because I do think, look, this can work. There, there's there's no issue with it. Uh, my personal comment in terms of looking at this and maybe this has to do with my background. And then when I got into the investment piece, you know, coming at it from the investment side and. You know, why is there a potential risk premium? Is it is it a cost of capital sort of economic argument or not? You know, et cetera. I look at this and I whenever I look at studies like this, you know, they, they I see this as as more engineering exercises way. And what I mean by that is, it's mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're just having fun with Excel, frankly. And, and trying to parse a lot historically what's worked and then, you know, extrapolating. Well, because it did that, it should go, it should do that going forward. 
My my biggest issue with this, and again, I say issue more to kind of spark conversation than anything, is that why? What is the economic reasoning of why this should work? Again, going back to why there's a risk premium, you can make the case. Well, stocks are riskier than bonds, hence you should have a higher expected return, and you even take it back to its cost of capital piece. Right? I'm having trouble looking at these studies and assigning an economic reasoning why a 4% rule should work, you know, relative to a 3.9% rule, relative to a 4.5% rule, other than seeing this as it's just a bunch of engineers kind of like figuring this stuff out. I don't see a lot of scientific rigor behind this from a, from a theory perspective, other than, you mm-hmm. know, a fancy game of Jenga on a, on a, on a, <laughs> on a you know on a on a spreadsheet i'm kind of being cute a little bit by half and 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 you know admittedly so but what would be your response if somebody was there what would they tell me other than to go yeah, leave I, the room well, or something I think like that you're, you've got a legitimate point there but uh, i think the response would be and, and i think a lot of people ha- would give this response that ultimately because we we i mean we don't know what's going to happen in the future but the best information we have is the historical data and so why not take full advantage of parsing out the historical data and also being very distrustful of anything besides the historical data and being comfortable again, kind of, we're almost at a hundred years now of since nine and with Robert well, Schiller, you can go back to 1871. So yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, well, but, I, I don't, well, okay, fine. I, I don't subscribe to the independence of the data being a hundred years, but that's fine. That's me. That's not, you know, right, that, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. That's not an issue. I'm just, I just, but you see, but when people say, okay, stock should outperform bonds, you can, you can make the case, look, historically it's been there. You know, and then I have to shut up, right? But beyond that, you can economically see why stocks outperform bonds because they're they're riskier, and you know you need to be compensated for taking on that extra risk. And like again, go back to cost of capital, right? If if I go to the bank for a loan versus Bill Gates goes to the bank for a loan, and it's the same amount, I'm going to get charged a higher rate than Bill Gates because I'm a riskier bet, right? And so I can see that in the risk premium to, to a large extent. I'm, I, I don't see that here other than the argument of, okay, it's, it's worked before. And that's fine. I, yeah, I'm just, I guess it's just an extrapolation. It's, well, okay. if you believe stocks will outperform bonds, this is really just an engineering exercise of will stocks outperform bonds soon enough that you can benefit from it and then – Yes, okay. historically, you think it will, I guess. And you can draw a sustainable withdrawal rate from it. Absent the comment you made before, or not absent, that's the wrong phrase, but in consideration of the comment you made before with the caveat that there is no safe withdrawal rate from a volatile asset. It's just a, a probability bet that you're making. And if you're probability-based, mm-hmm. that's fine. It, it, the world the world will continue to spin. Mm-hmm. That uh, yeah. I, I hope that's a fair representation of the the viewpoint that every this is a <laughs> this is an appropriate methodology for t- understanding the or obtaining useful advice on how to spend in retirement. Don't get me wrong; I think it's viable. Like I said, I'm trying to I'm trying to be a little bit of the contrarian here for the sake of being the contrarian. Fair enough. Yeah. No, 
I think that would be the response. It's, it's, it's just really this big engineering exercise of we believe stocks will outperform bonds. Someone might say, well, they might not outperform in time for your retirement. The, as you say, the market does not owe you a retirement. But then they say, okay, well, let's look at the historical data. And historically, the market did provide for those retirements. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. That's fair, man. I, again, just wanted to put it out there because I wanted to make sure it's all understood. Comparing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You're, you're a troublemaker here. No, so, <laughs> hardly. <laughs> hardly. <laughs> I, I think to, well, to wrap things up, let's just really – a lot of this has come up already, but what are the core assumptions of the 4% rule? Because then with our next episodes, we'll start digging deeper into what happens if you start changing some of those assumptions. So if you can entertain me on that, uh, you want me to just list these? Fire uh, with me. <laughs> okay. I mean, that, so if the philosophy of the 4% rule, it's you're really focused on, we talk a lot about longevity and lifestyle, you really focus more on the lifestyle. You want to meet your overall lifestyle goal. You want smooth spending, but you tolerate volatility. You define failure as depleting your investment portfolio. You are comfortable investing with a total returns investing strategy. You manage longevity by just planning for a long retirement. You really you manage spending shocks by just calibrating your spending to a worst case scenario within the idea would be if you're not in a worst case scenario, you'll have some reserves to cover spending shocks. And so the, the basic assumptions of the 4% rule, and this is where in, in future episodes, we're going to dig into as you change these assumptions, why might the 4% rule be too high or why might the 4% rule be too low? And that's about when we look at changing these basic assumptions. So the basic assumptions, this is one that's come up a lot today. U.S. historical data provides sufficient precedence for future outcomes, for, for understanding the range of future outcomes. Retirees will earn the underlying indexed market returns. Retirees invest with a total returns let, approach. Let me, let me, let me. Just, I need to jump in on that. Yeah, one. Some, yeah uh, I mean, well, we're going to get into the, this. Is what we're really going to start digging into. Okay, the, I, I think everyone but, that, I, but I think you say retirees earn underlying market index returns, and we we take that for granted. And I think readers read that. I mean, listeners hear that and say, okay, check, easy. That's that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't happen. <laughs> so just, and we can, that's a whole nother arc and we can talk about reasons why, but that's a very important assumption there. That's a sorry way. Yeah, that is it. a reason why the 4% <laughs> rule might be too high. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that more next week. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, just moving along. Retirees use a total return investing approach. That means they're not investing for dividends and, and all that sort of thing specifically. Uh, there's this whole tax issue, and the 4% rule ignores taxes. So with a taxable brokerage account, there's there's no 4% rule because you have to pay taxes on ongoing investment growth. If you have an IRA, it's just your taxes have to be paid out of the 4%. But taxes have an impact. Um, and Retirees are willing to deplete their portfolio. And wait, I got 78,000 reasons why taxes may be important going forward. <laughs> okay. You don't get uh, that. You, the the remember that they just hired like 80,000, 78,000 IRS oh, agents. Oh, oh. 
Oh, okay. Come on, man. You gotta keep up. Yeah, more audits. More audits. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but retirees are willing to deplete their investment portfolios. So that's just when we talked in the, the first episode of the season about do you want to spend your portfolio down to zero or have some sort of buffer at the end? You are willing to spend it down to zero with the 4% rule. You do want your spending to grow with inflation throughout retirement. That's another assumption. 30 years is a sufficiently long retirement planning horizon for the 4% rule. And so it's a basic assumption. And then with retirement asset allocation, it pretty much is limited to simple stock bond type asset allocation strategies. It's not a broadly diversified portfolio or it doesn't include any other types of like sophisticated asset allocation strategies. And that's the basic assumptions that we'll in subsequent episodes dive deeper into to talk about why might the 4% rule be too high? Why might the 4% rule actually be too low? And there's reasons for that as well. So that that's going to be what's coming up next in, in the series. Yeah, the, the only tautology, I think it's a tautology what I'll say is, but it also assumes that you're going to be spending this amount all the time. Like you're going to be spending the same at 95 as you are when you're 65. Yeah, yeah, that was, that's absolutely very important. I wrapped that into they want inflation adjusted spending. But yeah, that that's a good, that's what I mean by that. <laughs> and you said that much better. All right, this is recorded, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I gotta take my wings when I get them. Doesn't happen often talking to you. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, and um, yeah, the, the, I guess like you see here, we have a lot of fertile ground for for discussion. Uh, Way we're forty forty five minutes in. What do you think, man? Yeah, I think it's time to call it a wrap, and we'll we'll pick up with just digging deeper into these assumptions in the next couple episodes. All right, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Have a great week. Bye. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.